Today, we will be talking about difficult subject matter, so listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to the No Nonsense Anti-Racism Podcast. Last week, news broke of a gruesome discovery in Kamloops, BC. The unmarked graves of 215 children were found at a former residential school called Kamloops Indian Residential School. This school ran from 1890 to 1978 and was one of the largest residential schools in Canada. Enrollment in this school peaked in the early 1950s at 500 students. Now, this news wasn't news to the Indigenous community who lived nearby. They long knew about the missing children and had been advocating for more to be done on this. Cookby 7 Roseanne Casimir, Tick Emlup's chief, said that the community had knowledge of the missing children, which she called undocumented deaths. Some were as young as three years old, said Casimir. We sought out a way to confirm that knowing out of deepest respect and love for those lost children and their families. Understanding that Tekemlups to Shuswap is the final resting place of these children. Perry Bellegarde, the national chief of the Assembly of First Nations, called the news painful, adding that while it is not new to find graves at former residential schools in Canada, it's always crushing to have that chapter's wounds exposed. A large number of Indigenous children who were forcibly sent to residential schools across Canada never returned to their home communities. Some ran away while others died at school, according to the Missing Children Project, which launched in 2007. This newest discovery highlights the continued damage that Canada's residential school systems has had on Indigenous communities, the intergenerational trauma that they have and continue to endure. How did Canada's relationship with its Indigenous communities become so fraught? It's been hundreds of years of living side by side, although most, if not all of that, conflicted. But there is so much talk about how we're repairing the relationship. Is that the reality on the ground? If you're paying attention to the news, you'll see that issues that affect Indigenous communities are far from resolved. There are still so many communities that don't have clean drinking water, There are protests and conflicts when resource extraction companies try to access land without community consent. There's a mental health crisis amongst Indigenous youth, especially in the northern communities. And there are disputes between Indigenous and non-Indigenous lobster fishermen on the East Coast. These current issues are all rooted in Canada's history of treatment towards Indigenous peoples. It isn't something far removed that happened decades ago. Those systems may have been set up decades ago, but they continue to discriminate towards Indigenous peoples, and it affects them now and in the present. To understand the present, we need to revisit the past. Please know that this is a very tricky subject to include hundreds of years of history in a 30-minute podcast episode, so I'll touch on the relationship between settlers and First Nations, how this relationship evolved, how policies led to the residential school system, and how through all of this, the bodies of Indigenous children were found in an unmarked grave last week. Indigenous peoples have lived on their ancestral territories for time immemorial. Land is a central part of the First Nations identity. It's what provides for them, so there is a close and respected relationship between the earth, plants, and animals. For many Indigenous peoples, their creation story is tied to the land. North America is known as Turtle Island. Some estimates say that the population of Indigenous people ranged from 200,000 to 500,000 people pre-contact. 
but some suggest that it was actually as high as two and a half million, with between 300 and 450 different languages spoken. And of these indigenous communities, they had relationships with one another and diplomacy. Indigenous peoples have their own governing systems, one in which women have always played an important role. Indigenous people long had a process for making and maintaining diplomatic relationships with other indigenous nations. Treaty processes are grounded in their worldview, languages, knowledge system, and political culture. And these are governed by common ethics and the application of rights and responsibilities. It was a very comprehensive system. Indigenous peoples had treaties that guided their processes around trade, peace, neutrality, alliance building, use of land, protection, and many of these treaties were conducted orally through oral traditions and ceremonies and customs. There were, of course, conflicts between Indigenous people, similar to in any other part of the world, over land, access to resources, and trading routes, and this was also a factor for divisions when the first settlers arrived. At the same time that Indigenous communities were working and living together in North America, countries in Europe were looking to expand their power and their pockets. The bounties abroad that Portugal and Spain first collected made the other European nations very jealous and intrigued, and soon each nation set out to find their own riches. The arrival of Europeans in North America and the fur trade that followed kicked off in the 1500s and continued until the 1800s. The relationship between the Crown and First Nations were at first cooperative. Settlers arrived in small numbers with very little knowledge of the lands and climate of North America, and if not for the support of Indigenous people, they wouldn't have survived even one winter. Settlers relied on First Nations for their skill and knowledge of the land, the transportation routes, food, resources, and more. Indigenous peoples welcomed the small groups, as they didn't claim to own the land exclusively. This was against their beliefs. Doris Young, a member of the Indian Residential School Survivor Committee, described the importance of the land. Land is culture, she said. The land connects us to our language and our spirituality, our values, our traditions, and our laws of Mino Bimetasawin, which is the good life. In short, the land personifies who we are. It is the heart of our identity. It is our very lives, our souls, which are connected to the land of our ancestors. This ideology about land was not shared by Europeans, and it would be a fundamental factor that would end the working relationship between settlers and indigenous peoples. Agreements were made between these groups. Early treaties were established with the Crown of Britain and France, then known as commercial compacts. The Crown recorded treaties in writing, and some First Nations communities used different methods. For example, the Haudenosaunee used something called wampum belts. These belts contained two rows of purple beads, signaling the course of two vessels, indigenous and non-indigenous, traveling down the river of life together, parallel but never touching, in mutual respect and sovereignty. And this wampum belt is considered a treaty. Treaties were really important in the period, particularly because First Nations people outnumbered settlers, and the Crown relied on these relationships for the fur trade. Peace and friendship treaties show that the Crown recognized the power of First Nations people during negotiations. They treated First Nations people as allies. They didn't try to extinguish their rights or claim to land. 
Peace and friendship treaties were usually formed during times of warfare to bring about peace as well. Some treaties strengthened trading relationships to exclude competitors, but all of the treaties demonstrated the recognition by Europeans of the rights of the First Nations people as the original peoples of this land. The Europeans were the visitors, and the establishment of relationships and documented agreements were ways that they hoped to live amicably with the original peoples. But as we know, this working relationship devolved. As the economy shifted from the fur trade to agriculture, the relationship between First Nations and settlers changed. When the Crown no longer relied on First Nations communities to trade with, they instead began to pursue economic and political interests by opening up lands for settlement and constructing the railway to Western Canada. So this relationship changed, but also the way that they managed the relationship changed too. Treaty making was now a means for, quote unquote, the legal foundation necessary to access First Nations land for the development and settlement of Western Canada. So these treaties were no longer a sign of goodwill to demarcate which parts of the country settlers would use for their small groups, because their appetite was growing as far as the eye could see. Newly formed number treaties would be based on First Nations land rather than fur trade, peace, or friendship. First Nations and the Crown signed many territorial treaties across Canada between 1871 and 1921, including 11 numbered treaties. Many of these covered Northern Ontario, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Alberta, parts of the Yukon, the Northwest Territories, and British Columbia. Take note that the Crown only signed these treaties when more First Nations land was needed or when resources were at stake. There are many parts of Canada that to this day are unceded territory, which means that no treaties were ever signed. No agreement was ever made about giving up the land. So you may be listening to this now from unceded territory. The Maritimes, nearly all of British Columbia, and large parts of eastern Ontario and Quebec, including our nation's capital, Ottawa, sit on territory that were never signed away by the Indigenous people who inhabited them before Europeans settled in North America. The numbered treaties sought to extinguish Aboriginal title to land, but this wasn't how Indigenous people understood the agreements at all. Many of the Crown's oral promises were never included in written text, leading to differences in interpretation. An elder, Fred Kelly, said, In our traditional law, there is no concept of extinguishment or surrender, as is said in the treaties. In our language, we agreed to share. If our people had understood that, those treaties would never have been signed because there was no proper interpretation. As he mentioned, First Nations were making these agreements with the Queen, nation to nation. The promises and aspects of the agreement that they had discussed orally with some intermediaries didn't necessarily get written down. And from the point of view of the British and French, if it wasn't written down, it wasn't agreed to. So how did Europeans justify the taking of the land? We spoke earlier to this point of settlers coming and living side by side, but eventually it turned into a takeover entirely. So how did the Europeans justify this? Well, there's something called terra nullius. It's a Latin expression meaning no man's land. It's a principle used to justify the occupation of territory because it's not deemed to be used or owned by someone. And this played a huge role in colonialism in general because it allowed discoverers 
to overlook the presence of indigenous people who lived on the land, despite meeting and interacting with them on a very regular basis. The other way that they justified it was called the doctrine of discovery. This was largely the justification for taking land. The discovery, quote-unquote discovery of presumed empty land, gave the discovering nation immediate sovereignty and all rights and titles to the land. This was popularized after Christopher Columbus's first voyage to the Americas. You know Christopher Columbus, the one where he got lost and quote-unquote discovered new land? The doctrine of discovery was decreed a year after Christopher Columbus's first voyage to America. It's also known as the Papal Bull Intercastera. For us in Canada, one of the most important documents in the Crown First Nations relationship was the Royal Proclamation of 1763. The Royal Proclamation assured that any relationship with Indigenous peoples would be conducted on a nation-to-nation basis. However, the Royal Proclamation also created a process in which First Nations people could only give up their land to the Crown. So this placed the Crown in a position of authority over First Nations land based on the myth of Terra Nullius and the doctrine of discovery. We are going to take a short break and we'll be right back. Did you know we are always looking for community organizations to collaborate with? If you have any kind of events that you want to share out on this podcast or through our social media, please feel free to get in touch and we'd be happy to do that. You can contact us through email, nononsensepodcast at gmail.com, K-N-O-W. Also linked in the show notes. We can't wait to hear more from you. We're back. So we talked about how Indigenous people ended up losing land to the Crown and Canada. Well, what will be known as Canada. So now we're going to dive into a little bit more about the residential school system. The residential school system operated in Canada from the 1880s to 1996. The residential school system was an extensive system set up by the Canadian government and mostly administered by churches with the sole objective of educating Indigenous children to indoctrinate them into Euro-Canadian and Christian ways of living. This way, they could be assimilated into mainstream, aka white society. Children were forcibly separated from their families. Parents found to be hiding their children or trying to restrict them from going to these schools could face prison sentences. In these schools, children were forbidden from speaking their languages or practicing their customs. This was cultural genocide against Indigenous people. It was a purposeful attempt by the church and state to eradicate all aspects of Indigenous culture from them. It was a system designed to, quote-unquote, kill the Indian in the child. Many children were abused, physically, sexually, emotionally, and psychologically. Early origins of the residential school system were implemented in mission systems in the 1600s. Churches and settlers already had preconceived notions on First Nations people, interpreting their lifestyle as savage, heretic, and ignorant. So for a long time, they felt that they needed to civilize Indigenous peoples. Prime Minister Sir Johnny MacDonald commissioned a study of industrial schools for Indigenous children in the United States. 
the commission recommended to follow the U.S. example of aggressive civilizing that led to the public funding of the residential school system. Canada soon began to establish the residential school system across Canada. In 1920, under the Indian Act, it became mandatory for every Indigenous child to attend residential school, and it was illegal for them to attend any other kind of educational institution. In these residential schools, the living conditions were horrible. The aim, again, of the residential school systems were to eliminate all aspects of Indigenous culture from the children. When they arrived, students' hair was cut short, they were dressed in uniforms, lived by very strict timetables, and were forbidden to speak their language. For some First Nations community, you only cut your hair when someone died, so this was a culturally shocking experience for some children. Girls were separated from boys. Brothers were separated from their sisters. It was extremely overcrowded. Indigenous children had inadequate food, and there was poor sanitation throughout. Teaching was primarily for practical skills, so for girls, they were learning domestic work such as laundry, sewing, cleaning, and cooking. And for boys, it was more about labor and manual jobs, so carpentry and farming skills. Many students attended class part-time and worked for the school the rest of the time, involuntarily and unpaid, of course. And many of these schools couldn't run without this forced labor. With so little time spent in class, most students had only reached grade 5 education by the time they were 18 years old. And when they were 18, at this point, students were sent away. Many were discouraged from pursuing further education. Abuse, again, was widespread in schools. Emotional and psychological abuse was constant. Physical abuse was masked as punishment. And sexual abuse was also common. Survivors recall being beaten and strapped. Some students were shackled to their bed. Some had needles shoved into their tongue for speaking their native language. In 1907, government medical inspector P.H. Bryce reported that 24% of previously healthy Indigenous children across Canada were dying in residential schools, 24%. And that number doesn't include those children who died at home. Bryce also reported that between 47 to 75% of students discharged from residential schools died shortly after returning home. These are shocking numbers. Experimentation was done at some schools on children by government scientists. They'd use hungry and malnourished children in controlled trials on the effectiveness of different vitamins and nutrients. Court documents were released as part of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Describe the lengths that researchers at the time went to protect their results over the protection of children. After a principal in Kenora, Ontario asked that all residential school children be given iron and vitamin tablets, the researcher asked them to refrain from doing so because it would interfere with their experiments. In another instant, researchers withheld dental treatment from children because they worried that healthier teeth and gums would skew their results. This school in Kenora was also used to test an experimental drug on children with ear problems, leaving nine children with significant hearing loss, according to court documents. Don't forget that this was happening to children. Many of them had no idea what was happening to them, let alone their parents or community members. I could do an entire episode on this subject and likely will in the future because it's really shocking to learn about, but also really incredibly important too. 
By the 1950s, there was increasing questions on the viability of the residential school project. Also, the devastating impact on Indigenous peoples was becoming more widely recognized. By 1969, residential schools began to decline in numbers. Unfortunately, this gave way to the 60s scoop, a period in which thousands of Indigenous children were abducted by social services and removed from their families. The 60s scoop was a systemic removal of Indigenous children from their families without consent from parents or authorities. So what has the impact been on Indigenous communities? Well, the last known residential school closed in 1996. Intergenerational wounds are prevalent. Survivors and their descendants still live with the lasting trauma. Personal trauma as well as the loss of language, culture, traditional teachings, and mental and spiritual well-being. According to the report of the Aboriginal Justice Inquiry of Manitoba, Several generations of Indigenous people were denied the development of parenting skills, not only through the removal from their communities and from their families, but from the severe lack of attention paid to their issues by school officials. And this, of course, contributes to the educational, social, financial, and health gaps that we now see between Indigenous peoples and the rest of Canadians. I should note that some Indigenous peoples did say that they had positive experiences at their school, and they were grateful for the time that they had. Not every single residential school produced trauma for young people. In the late 1980s, the legal system began to respond to the claims brought forward by survivors of different kinds of abuse during their time in residential schools. In 1997, Canada apologized to former students for the physical and sexual abuse that they suffered in residential schools, and the Aboriginal Healing Foundation was established as a government plan to help these communities affected by the residential school. But in 2002, the National Class Action Lawsuit was filed for compensation for all former residential school survivors and their family members. In 2005, 80,000 survivors in Canada reached a settlement for individual compensation, including additional funding to create a healing foundation and for funds to go towards the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. On June 11, 2008, the Canadian government issued a formal apology by then-Prime Minister Stephen Harper. Which brings us to the present. The finding of unmarked graves is not a first, and as I mentioned earlier, is not a surprise to the communities that children were torn away from. According to Catherine Ainsley Morton, a PhD candidate who works on anti-colonial research in Canada, specifically with residential schools, she said that, sadly, unmarked burial grounds like this have been found before. There have been so many undocumented deaths as the system did not report fatalities in these residential schools, so there is no paper trail. Unmarked graves have also been found in Saskatchewan, Manitoba, and in Ontario. At least 3,200 children died while attending residential schools in Canada. These are documented. But this number could be much higher. Estimates are closer to 6,000. But Justice Marie Sinclair argued that this number is likely higher, perhaps 5 to 10 times as much. Because of poor burial records, the commission could not report a more accurate number. Most of the deaths of Indigenous children are identified as having died of disease or by accident, whatever that means. Approximately 150,000 
First Nations children went through the residential school system over the last 150 years, and 60% of these schools were run by the Catholic Church. Many young people never returned home. Some ran away, but others died at the school, either by suicide, by accidents, or simply by disappearing. Many children were poorly nourished, physically or sexually abused, and developed tuberculosis or other infections. Where are some of these buildings now, you might be wondering. Many residential schools have actually been demolished or turned into a golf course, school, or a museum to preserve Indigenous history. But there is a lot of bureaucratic red tape when trying to get access to some of these sites to investigate additional burials. Through the process of sharing what happened to them, and from the settlement from the federal government, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was created. The Truth and Reconciliation Commission was created through a legal settlement between residential school survivors, the Assembly of First Nations, Inuit representatives, and the parties responsible for creation and operation of the schools, the federal government, and the church bodies. They're mandated to inform all Canadians about what happened in residential schools. It's a very lengthy document, and we are going to include the link to the show notes so that you can go take a look at it. The Truth and Reconciliation Commission documents the stories and experiences of survivors, their families, and their communities, and essentially anyone who was affected by residential schools. The TRC issued its final report in 2015. They also hosted national events across Canada to promote awareness and public education about residential schools and its impact. The final report also included 10 principles for reconciliation and 94 calls to action that speak to all sectors of Canadian society and how they can do their part to build back the relationship with Indigenous peoples. These 94 calls to action are the basis of reconciliation and community building that many organizations and activists are taking up now. Some of the calls to action include Action 43, that calls upon federal, provincial, territorial, and municipal governments to fully adopt and implement the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, or Call to Action 80, We call upon the federal government in collaboration with Aboriginal peoples to establish as a statutory holiday a National Day for Truth and Reconciliation to honor survivors, their families, and communities. The Truth and Reconciliation Commission and its calls to action are a milestone for Indigenous settler relationship building, but we still have a long way to go before real trust has been developed. Don't forget that it's been hundreds of years of paternalism, disrespect, and inhumanity. It'll take more than just some words to fix this relationship. So where do we go from here? Well, the federal government is once again committing to improving efforts for reconciliation since the discovery of the remains of these children in Kamloops, BC. Many Canadians are shocked to hear about the way this country has treated Indigenous people and children This will prove to be an important learning for many Canadians. And education is an important step, but there are a few more ways to support. Learn more about the organizations doing the work to bring closure to families whose children never came home from residential schools. There's a project called The Missing Children Project. We'll link it in the show notes. Please go take a look. Also make sure to share information out widely about the residential school system and our history of how we've treated Indigenous peoples in this country. Make sure to correct misinformation that you see or hear, which may be rooted in racism and stereotypes about Indigenous folks. 
There's a lot of resources to watch too if you want to learn more. There is a documentary called We Were Children about residential school survivors, but I have to warn you, it's incredibly disturbing. I could barely get through it myself. It is a really heavy week for a lot of people, so do make sure to prioritize your mental health. Reach out and find out how your Indigenous friends and folks are feeling. It is not an easy time for them. It's a reminder about the horrors of what's happened in the residential school system, but it's just heavy in general, so make sure to check up on on your friends. Join us next week for the next episode. But in the meantime, engage with us on social media. You can find us on Instagram. The handle is racism is nonsense. Racism period is period nonsense. If you're a community organizer who would like to collaborate with us, contact us at nononsensepodcast at gmail.com. Also in the show notes. This episode was researched by Beverly Osunzua, produced by Nicola. Jade Sullivan manages our communications.